0: You know, throughout history, there have been just crazy military blunders where a nation decided, hey, let's go attack that nation. That makes good sense. And then, and then they kind of ended up like I did with like something, you know, hitting them in the nose. The, the Mongols, I don't know if you knew this, they, they sent a fleet to attack Japan, you know, many, many centuries ago. That ended in just complete and total disaster. How many have heard of the Spanish Armada? Yeah, the King of Spain just thought, hey, let's go attack Britain. That sounds like a good idea. We got all these ships, and they didn't have nearly as many ships when they were done as when they started. Hitler attacked Russia, opened a second front. Japan attacked the U.S. unprovoked. Like, what, like what's going on in people's minds that they think this seems like a good idea? Of course, it's always after the fact, but still, it's like, you don't need that. Why, why would you do that? I think it, biblically, we think of the story of Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, who sent his army against Jerusalem. actually, he went with them, and they taunt. Remember that they taunt Hezekiah, they taunt the people of Jerusalem they even they even speak in in Hebrew so that they 'll really hear them just absolutely scoffing and mocking God and god 's king and all the rest and i don 't know if you know the rest of that story, but The Lord took care of it for, they didn't even muster an army, the the Jews didn't even have to muster an army. 185,000 died in the Assyrian camp, and then Sennacherib goes home, and he's murdered by his two sons in the temple uh, of Nisroch, his god. Don't you love that? Why would you do that? Why would you set yourself against the Lord and His anointed? Jesus gives a parable in the New Testament where he says if, if a king has 10,000 soldiers and he's going to go up against a king with 20,000, he has to ask himself, do I have enough to do that? And if I don't, I should send a delegation for peace. Well, Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Let me just quickly explain for those that are, are new to the scriptures, mess- messianic means dealing with the Messiah. And you're like, well, what's the Messiah? The Messiah means anointed. As you might have known when we uh, went through Psalm 2, it talks about the Lord and his anointed. That is the Hebrew word Messiah, the, the anointed king of Israel. And then we translate that into Greek in the New Testament as Christos, which is Christ. And that comes to us as Christ in, the, uh, in English. Does that make sense? So it's about Christ. It's about the Messiah. That's what Psalm 2 is dealing with. In many ways, chapter 2 is picking up... How many were here last time and you and you listened to Psalm 1 being preached or you p- picked it up uh, on YouTube? I hope you did if you weren't able to be here. But um, you have kind of this... It's like the scoffers of chap- chapter 1 become the kings that set themselves against Messiah in chapter 2. And indeed, all those who set themselves against the Lord Jesus, against the anointed messianic king, are going to suffer what it is, what's said of these kings. So you're with me? The big idea of Psalm 2, this messianic psalm, is do not set yourself against the kingdom of Christ. Don't go to war with God. It's a dumb, dumb thing to do. Just like all those military blunders we talked about. Like, why would you take on God? Big mistake. Big. And there's five reasons, I held up four fingers, but five reasons why this is bad. First of all, because it is a vain rebellion. It is a vain rebellion. You know, in Star Trek, the Borgs say resistance is futile. This is futile. It's vain. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why, why do that? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, when the Jews read this in chapter 2 of Psalms, they would have thought, well, the nations, who are the nations? That's just, if you translate that, that comes out as Gentiles. So the Gentile rulers are the ones thought of of here, of those that refuse. They're, they're, They're leading this coup against the Lord and his Christ. They don't want to be, if you go back to Psalm 1, they don't want to be bound by the Torah. They don't want to be bound by God's commands and God's law. They don't want to be the tree that's planted by the waters and, and enjoy all of that or delight themselves in the law of the Lord. They want to burst those bonds. Interestingly, we know from the New Testament that this is a Psalm of David. It doesn't say that in the Old Testament. It doesn't say it's not. just doesn't say who wrote it. We find out in the New Testament that it was regarded as a psalm of David. And in its original setting, therefore, it may well have been initially when David wrote it, he may have been thinking kind of immediately of himself as king and and those nations that he had conquered and subdued like Edom and others, and these might have been like raising up against him or threatening to, and, and so that could have been the initial thing that he was thinking of. But we know that it's more than that we know it's messianic we know that the people of god god's old testament people considered it to be a messianic psalm not just looking to david but david's son and of course david's eventual son the fulfillment of all of those in messiah and when you see this you understand how it is and, and I, i'm really ho- i'm so hopeful of this psalm today and that you're really going to pay attention because this will unlock some stuff for you for, in just how the Old Testament and New Testament come together, particularly with the book of, of Psalms. And when you understand Psalm two and you see it in its setting and how the Jewish people took it, then when, when you're reading the gospels and Jesus starts to preach, you know, the kingdom of God has come and you go, I wonder if they understood what he was talking about there. Like he just came around talking about this weird kingdom of God thing. What's that about? This is it. This, this is like almost ground zero, this and other chapters of, of, of the Old Testament as well. But this is very much a kind of ground zero thing. For instance, Peter, well, it's not just Peter, it's the whole church really in Acts chapter 4. They quote this. It's after Peter and, and, and John have been released from the high priest. They've been, you know, they've been warned about preaching in Jesus' name. And he quotes this this first section here about the nations setting themselves against Messiah. And then they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there's that word anointed coming right out of Psalm 2, that's the Messiah, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place so the kings why do the nations rage who are the kings who are the nations well pilate fulfilled that because he represented the roman empire and you could think of king herod king herod wasn't a jew Uh, and so yeah the nations were raging what we find out in the new testament it's not just the nations is it that set themselves against him it was also the leaders of god's people who were who you could say fallen away who you know they, they 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 were not really counted as true israel at that point they were regarded as the nations because they set themselves against messiah and they thought that they had won they thought that they had succeeded at setting themselves against the anointed now they they weren't thinking in those terms you understand but they thought they had neutralized jesus they thought they had taken care of all of his influence and thrown it off. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave. And surprise. And this goes right to the heart of why men and women today reject Jesus. It's, it, it goes, it, it, this is very similar to just the average person and why they try to put off and set, a, set um, themselves against Jesus. They'll come up with intellectual reasons. Don't you get tired of that after a while? Pseudo-intellectual young people who have watched a couple TikTok videos. And now they know there's nothing to this religion thing. There's nothing to this Jesus thing. And they're spouting some, some kind of stuff that, that, that isn't well-grounded at all. But I find most of the time it's not intellectual when you, when you dig down a little bit. It's just they were brought up in the church and there were rules. And they understood that God had commands and that, that they were to obey God. And, uh, and then they got a taste of freedom and they, they thought, you know what? I don't want to be a tree planted i want to be the chaff i want to be i want to be free i want to blow where the wind blows i want to go wherever that takes me and they set themselves against the lord and against his christ little do they realize that a day is coming when that vanity will be absolutely plainly clear because he's coming again king of kings Lord of lords, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can try to set, him, uh, set yourself against Him. You can try to burst those bonds, but there will be a day when your knee will bow. Don't set yourself against Him. It's in vain. It's futile. You just, you just think you can put Him away, but you won't succeed Second reason not to set yourself against him is because the Lord scoffs at any such attempt. And I use the term scoff because that's the word that's used in Psalm 1 of the those that sit in the seat of the scoffers. Remember them? Yeah? And now we have the Lord in heaven scoffing at them, as someone has said, God scoffs back. They scoff at him, he scoffs back. Look at what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. You know, some people might not like the, the thought of this. Like, how could God laugh at people? Isn't that just awful that he would laugh at them, that he would hold them in derision? No, it's not awful at all. <laughs> In fact, it's, it's, it's 100% and totally appropriate that God would laugh. How foolish, when you get if you want to look at something that's just humorous on the face, right? Anything really silly should be funny, yeah? Don't we typically laugh at things that are just really, really silly? How silly is it for a man to think of himself as, as so clever and, and so well-informed that he is in a position to mock God? When Sennacherib gets back to Assyria and he gets murdered by his sons that's kind of funny really because a moment before he was shaking his fist at the Lord Almighty and against his anointed and 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 mocking God and what does God say about being mocked He won't be He won't God will not be mocked I don't have a problem with God mocking those that are mocking him. Um, they have no fear of God. They, they don't understand that they are chaff. I remember a clip from a show. It was called The Last Comic Standing. I never watched it. Did any of you ever watch that show? It was kind of like an American Idol type of thing. And there's a very famous clip you may have seen at some point. Norm MacDonald was one of the judges. And uh, he, Norm, Norm Macdonald could be very, very vulgar. I don't recommend him to, to that you sit around watching watch a bunch of Norm Macdonald. But, but anyway, he was one of the judges, and this guy comes on, um, and he's trying to do his best to make people laugh for about three minutes, and then he gets judged. And, uh, and the thing was, his whole shtick was making fun of Christians. It was like a three-minute deal, three-minute stand-up thing where he just made fun of Christians and made fun of the Bible and made fun of our God. And uh, then it came to the time of judging, and Roseanne Barr was there, and she's like, oh, I think that's really brave, you know, I mean, you were brave. And, and, uh, and then it comes over to Norm MacDonald, and he goes, no, that wasn't brave. And he didn't crack a smile, and he didn't make a joke. He said, that wasn't brave at all. He said, you know, if you're going to take on a whole religion, and, and you're going to take on the Bible, it might be good to do some homework and know what you're talking about. And if you're a Christian and you watch that, you're like, yes, <laughs> right? Like, well, I shouldn't gleefully, you know, feel that way, but I do, you know, I really, I really do. And, and the, and the psalmist, you know, you think about this. If somebody were to come after your child, and you're not perfect, and your child's not perfect, but if somebody comes after your child and they set themselves against your child, what are you going to do? Right? That's, I mean, I'm not saying you should punch him in the nose. or That's not how I got this, by the way. Uh, I'm not saying you should do violence, but I can guarantee you're going to feel that because you love your child and you're one, you want to come to your child's defense. How much more so the God of the universe is going to defend his son who is pure love and, 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 and holy is, if they mock him, is he not going to mock them back? The psalmist adds that He will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury. God God is not putting up with this. Now, the thing is, God has been merciful. If things were as they ought to be, the minute somebody opened their mouth and started to mock God, he should strike them down. I mean, lightning should come out of the sky and just burn them to a crisp right there at that moment. They're mocking a holy God but God is righteous and merciful, and he, and he allows them to go on. He leaves them time and room for repentance. But it's not a free pass. A day will come, he says, when they will experience his wrath and his fury. Why would you set yourself against a holy God and set not yourself just against him, but set yourself up for giving an account before him for what you've done? See, the problem with jest and mockery you know, there are different kinds of humor, and I've never really enjoyed particularly the kind of humor that just mocks another person. People will laugh at it. They'll think it's funny. But And it's, I know it's just, a, it, it's just pretend, right? They're not really, probably, when comedians do that. But the thing is, is, if your type of humor is to mock other individuals, what are you really saying? You're saying, I'm smarter, and I'm better, and I can judge you, and I can look down on you, and I can ridicule you, and I can get people to laugh because look how silly you are. And they're doing that to the God of the universe. And they're doing that to his son, to his anointed one, and God, God won't tolerate that. That's why you shouldn't set yourself against God. It's just, it's dumb. It's just, I'm sorry, it's just a dumb thing to do. Thirdly, the third reason you should not set yourself against the kingdom of Christ is because the Lord has installed his son as king. Done. That's his, he's determined that. That's God's plan. It says, as for me, this is God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So the Lord is speaking in verse 6. The Lord expresses there His decree. He has determined. This is God's plan. He is ordained. He has set His king on Zion's holy hill. Where's Zion, by the way? Please don't say anything from the matrix. That'll be embarrassing. Yeah, there's a Zion in the matrix. Never mind. Um, Anyway, but Zion is another name for Jerusalem. It's talking about the covenant with David. God ordained that. God lifted David out of the sheepfold, as it were. He brought brought him out of there and, and he anointed him through the prophet Samuel. And he s- established his kingdom with David. That was God's plan. Not someone else's plan. And there was no contrary plan. There was one plan. It was God's plan. God says with David. I'm going to do it that way. And all at once the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Merges, as it were, in a sense. There's a coming together of God's eternal kingdom purposes and this kingdom of a a man whom God has installed and placed there in Zion. The Davidic covenant and the Messiah with it are God's doing. In verse 7, David quotes the Lord's words to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, if we understand that this is there's a twofold aspect to this. On the one hand, God is speaking to David, yeah, and in another sense, He's speaking to the fulfillment of that, which He is speaking about Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, the fulfillment, which is Jesus Christ. And so He says, "Today I have begotten you." It's not saying that Jesus Christ uh, was not eternally begotten, as we confess to be true. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning with God. That, that, that is all true. But when, he, when God is speaking to David, in one sense, as his son, that's, a, that's in a different way. Does that make sense? Why, how those two things can both be true? But there is also that sense in which God declared very clearly that Jesus was his son. Look at what happened at his baptism, Matthew 3, 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. So God is declaring what he declares in Psalm 2. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He said the same thing at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. You also hear these words somewhat echoed. Check this out now, Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's words as he was writing to the Romans. He says, "...concerning his son who has descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." Brothers and sisters, when we declare that Jesus Christ is God's son and that he is the Christ and that he is the Lord, we are absolutely 100% in agreement with Psalm 2. Do you see that? Do you see how all that comes together? I hope this is opening some stuff up for you as, as you look at this. Because sometimes I think if you're a New Testament uh, Christian and you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament, and then you go back and you read some of the Old Testament, you're like, do those two things even fit together exactly? And you don't understand how. You're seeing it right in front of you right now. Who are we to set ourselves against the Lord, against His only begotten Son, the Christ? It It is ludicrous. And when you get into, like, the Gospel of John, and there are other passages like this where... Jesus will say really radical things like, to believe in me or to believe in my Father, you have to believe in me. Effectively saying in other places, if you reject me, you're rejecting the Father. Now, how many have read that and at times thought, "Whoa, that hmm, was a little, you know, just... Does that bear up? Does God talk about the old? I mean, these people were believers in God. I mean, they'd spent their whole life worshiping God in the, under the old covenant, now he's saying that they don't even believe in the Father if they don't believe in me. Is Jesus going way out over his skis on that deal? Read Psalm 2. Can you believe in the one who has established his king on Zion who says, you are my son? Can you believe in that king and reject the Messiah? No. No, you cannot. And it's, it's foolish to go there. The fourth reason, because Christ inherits all from the Father. So all these nations that are spoken of here who have foolishly set themselves against the Lord and is, is anointed against the Messiah, what they don't realize is they've already been given to him. They've already been given to him. They just, they just think they're in rebellion, but he owns them. He owns, look, look what it says. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Messiah owns these nations the way the chiefs owned the dolphins last week. And the way the chiefs will own the... Well, I don't want to go too far. It might not be that clear tonight. So anyway, but but just listen to the poetry of, of the words. He possesses them. He possess they are his. Think of all those movies you saw years ago or stories from history of how you have like a high king who has sons, they're princes, and what does he usually do as he gets older? He starts divesting. It's like, Okay, I'm gonna give you this kingdom over here, of this conquered people, you know, they belong to me now. They're now they're yours and they're for you to rule. And sometimes in those scenarios, those king, those princes, they don't end up being as strong as daddy. You know, they're not quite Charlemagne and they don't quite pull it off. But what does it say of of the anointed one of the Christ here when you look at it? It says to remove all doubt that, that somehow he wouldn't be able to do or possess what God has given him. It says that he will break with a rod of iron and smash them like a potter's vessel. So, how many do any gardening and you have some clay pots sitting around somewhere? I just just think for your own good and for your own benefit, so you'll understand this psalm better, I think when you get home, you should go out to the garage, get yourself a big piece of rebar or some kind of stock of metal that you've got, and just go and take one of your big cherished uh, clay pots and just take a few whacks at it. What's going to happen? How is the pot going to hold up? I mean, some of those clay pots are pretty robust. I mean, you put dirt in, they can hold a whole lot. Of, but what's going to happen? It's going to shatter. It's going to smash in an absolute million pieces. This tells you that the Messiah will rule. He will rule over that which has been given to him and resistance to him. Setting yourself against him is, is ridiculous. It's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand to take a, a clay pot up against somebody wielding, you know, a heavy metal bar and go, oh, you know, I'm safe behind this. Not going to work, is it? I can imagine that you read this and hear this and you might think, well, Jay, this isn't the Jesus I know from the New Testament. Surely, surely this isn't the same Jesus who comes riding on a donkey who's meek and mild, who stands before Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my followers would have, would have fought for it. Are these two the same? And the answer is yes. First of all, when Jesus came, he crushed, he crushed the serpent by his death, burial, and resurrection. For the time being, his kingdom, which is an eternal kingdom, is spreading bit by bit, person by person, throughout all the nations of the world. And it has been for the last 2,000 years. It is taking ground. It is taking the hearts of men and women selectively, you might say. It, you know, partially, you might say. But there is a day that is yet coming when all of that, that, that impart nature of it is going to be to- total. Where it says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. King of kings, Lord of lords, the kings of the earth will hide themselves. They'll, they'll call out to the mountains, fall on us and, and hide us from the, from the face of the Lamb. Yeah, from the wrath of the Lamb. How long can you resist God? How long can you resist him? He owns you, even if you're in rebellion against him. You think, oh, you know, I've distanced, my, I haven't got anything to do with that God, I haven't got anything to do with that Christ. Yeah, that's only true for the moment as far as you're concerned. But it's not true in any ultimate sense. You know, in the day that God destroyed the ancient world by flood, there were mockers in those days. When's this rain coming? What's that all about? You know, and they mocked God. How, how long were they able to mock Him once the rain started to fall and the door of the ark was shut? It's quantifiable, I can tell you exactly how long they were able to mock Him, as long as they were able to tread water. And when that moment where they couldn't tread water anymore, they fell under the judgment of God. And there is a day coming. You, you can, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. I don't want to have anything to do with Christ. I don't want to have anything to do with this God that you're talking about. He owns you. He owns you whether you know it or not. Every knee will bow. Not just the ones who have confessed him now. They will be with him forever in glory. They will have eternal life. But, it, but if you're mocking him now, in that day, you'll bow the knee, but it, it will be in an unwilling manner, and you will, you will perish. Finally, don't set yourself against Him, because to fear Him brings joy and blessing. To fear Him brings joy and blessing. It says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you hear the kindness of God in this? The goodness and kindness of God. Like I said earlier, all those people that set themselves against and mocked God, they should have been like evaporated, vaporized the moment they did that. And here he has given them time and they've set themselves against him. And what does he say? Essentially, he says, look, Let's, re- let's be reasonable here. Let's be, stop being foolish. Be, be wise and be warned. That is gracious of God. That is, the gra- that is the kindness of God that should lead them to repentance. Really, these last three verses balance God's holiness and righteousness and wrath so well with His mercy. I, I, I love it. He invites them. He invites them to serve the Lord in fear. Now, to a person that's anti, they hear that and they go, serve the Lord with fear. That doesn't sound like much of a, you know, that doesn't sound very nice or very kind. But then he says, rejoice with trembling. He, rejoice with trembling. He's saying to them, look, if you are wise and you will turn to me, I will allow you to serve me. This is the God of the universe saying, you who have mocked me, I will receive your service in Hebrew, that's another word for worship. I'll, I'll receive your worship of me. Not only that, if, if you will come and repent and fall before me, yeah, there will be trembling, but you know what? In the trembling, you're going to have joy. You're going to rejoice in the trembling. Imagine, if you will, a, a talking lion. I just pulled this completely out of nowhere, right? Just, just big talking lions, like twice the size of normal lions, We'll give him a name. Let's call him um, Aslan. I know, that sounds like a good name. You knew where I was going with that, right? Yeah, that's, it's such a good picture of the Christ. You know, I, love, I love that metaphor. He's twice the size of a normal lion. His, his paws are like the size of manholes when he, when, he, when he roars, paint is peeled off of everything nearby. And, uh, and you've been his enemy. You've been a mocker of him. And, and he could destroy you with just, just a breath as it were, and, and yet he bids you come to him. And he's like, come, bow. And, and, and he doesn't destroy you, he lets you come. And then, as it were, he invites you to, to worship him, to enter into relationship with him. He could, he could strike you and you'd be dead and you, and you could feel the immensity of the enormity and you're trembling, but then with it, there's this joy. Like, I've been ushered into the presence of a king and I've been received by him. Yeah, there's trembling and there's joy. And, and here comes the part in verse 12 that I love so much. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Kiss the son lest he be angry. We, we've all probably seen movies where, where a lesser king comes before a high king and he'll bow and he'll take the hand and he'll kiss the hand. I don't know if the hand is actually meant here or whether we're to picture more of an embrace that's happened in some cultures where a lesser king will, you know, give them you know, the kiss of greeting. And, and what is that? It, it, it's uh, it's, uh, it's um, an, an honor that you're showing them. You're paying them an homage when you, when, when you come to them. We can bow the knee to Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. We are invited, as it were, to kiss the Son to end our rebellion, to end our mockery and our ridicule and enter into relationship, and in place of his wrath and his fury, there will be a trembling, fearful joy. He invites us into that. Why set yourself against him? And then it finishes out. Blessed are all those are all those who take refuge in him. The Blessed man of chapter 1: one. Yeah. Who is that? It's not the fool who sets himself against God and sits in the seat of scoffers. It is the one who looks to the Son, who is the perfect emblem of the blessed man and through the blessed man finds refuge. And with his blessing, the blessing of the Son, he will then, or she, will be blessed. Christian, you were once a rebel. Do you remember it? Maybe you're so young you don't, but, but, but you were a rebel against God. You were a scoffer. You were a sinner. You were chaff, being blown by the wind. But God, through the gospel, got to you, and you heard, and, and He turned you, and you repented, and you looked to God in, in trembling, and He received you. He took you, and He joined you with, with His Messiah. And through Christ, through him, you now have the blessings of God. You've taken refuge in Christ. And that is is the best place to be of all. If I'm speaking, though, to a rebel, I would ask you today, why would you set yourself against the Almighty? I mean, I don't want to, I'm not supposed to go around calling people fools, so I'm not going to do that, but what, I mean, why would you do that? It, it just genuinely makes no sense. God, God says in Psalm 2, long before Jesus was born at Bethlehem, long before that, he says, don't set yourself against my king. I've established my king. He's my son. I stand with him. Don't, you know, why would you, don't be foolish that way. And yet, that is exactly what you have done. How long can you go on? With the mercy of God, and it's a mercy that God lets you draw breath as a rebel against Him, how long can you continue in that? How long can you tread water? One day you will die. One day you will stand before the God of the universe. And I don't know exactly what he's going to say because I don't think it's been shown to us exactly the verbiage, but based on Psalm 2 and everything we know of the New Testament, he's probably going to ask you have you mocked my son or have you taken refuge in him have you have you have you sat in the seat of the scornful or have you fled to my son and found refuge in him and we just urge you we just urge you today don't be foolish. Come to Christ. Christ came to us. He he came as a servant. He died in the place of sinners. He was put to death. He rose the third day. If you turn to Him and, and you seek your refuge in Him, He will be found, and you'll tremble with joy. You will be the blessed man or woman today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, which, which speaks the truth to us. Lord, sometimes as, as New Testament Christians, it's, it's, it, we, we don't even get the connection sometimes with things of the old. And, and here before us today, you, you've shown us so clearly your plan for Messiah. And you've also made it clear to us that we are to stand with him, not against him. So, Lord, thank you so much for the grace and the mercy that you've shown to us, your people, that we have been drawn to him, that, Lord, you, that you overcame our rebellion and you drew us to find refuge in your son. Thank you for that. And, and Lord, we pray that, that you might open a heart today, that, that Lord, that by that same imagery of, of iron smashing the, the potter, potter's vessel, that that you would smash the outward hardened heart that prevents a sinner from turning to you, that you would just break through, that your spirit would give life, that they would hear the gospel today in a way they never have, that it would penetrate, Lord, and that they would confess their sin to you and trust in Christ and be saved. We ask it in his name. Amen.